Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits. Joining me today is Renee Mancino to talk about RFP responses. Renee, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I love asking the first question to introduce my guest is, what is your superhero origin story? That is to say, how is it that you came to start working with nonprofits? Uh, well, I'll start with that question first. So would you like to know who my superhero is, or are you going to try to guess after I tell you the origin? I think you're the superhero, and you're telling me your origin story of how it is that you are you. So, I, But if you relate to a particular superhero, I'm happy to guess as well. Oh, okay. So my superhero origin story is that I found myself working in uh, a family business for a very long time when I was very young and started out my career and spent about 10 years um, trying to take this balance of owning a company, co-owning a company, taking care of my family, taking care of myself. And after 10 years of going at a breakneck speed pace, I, I made a very difficult decision to step out of the business and kind of find my own path and find things that are interesting to me. And I wandered into the live event production world um, by happenstance and um, just really enjoyed my time working with corporations on how their messaging came across to their audiences, whether it was internal audiences or external audiences, and kind of honed that craft in a smaller agency world and then went to the global agency world. And COVID um, actually uh, kind of killed that dream for me. Um, my entire team was let go as nobody was doing any live events for corporations during that time. And I was fortunate enough to meet a lot of partners in that industry, uh, one being um, Scenic Fabrication. And they took me on board and um, spent some time redeveloping their business strategies, how they business develop. And from that, I was introduced to the world of interactive media through partnering with other companies um, on projects that we had won bids on. And so I am currently the creative uh, growth director for a interactive media company called Blue Telescope and very much enjoying this new chapter of my life. Awesome. And Today's conversation is about RFPs, which is Request for Proposals. Mm -hmm. And we've had a couple of, uh, actually it was your, your sister came on to talk about um, from the perspective of, let's say, a nonprofit or some other type of organization submitting an RFP and you know what should be in that RFP document so that proper vendors can properly respond to it. And today's mm -hmm. conversation is kind of the opposite side of that equation of, of you know how would you and how should you and what are the best ways to answer and respond to an RFP. So I'm curious to know if you could just maybe give us a bit of context of how how is it that you came across this knowledge that you're going to be able to share today? Sure. Um, since I went out on, on my own and started in the corporate uh, space for production of meetings all the way to what I'm doing right now, I find that the process has been very similar, whereas we are chasing quite large projects and there has never been a project where it's new business, where I have not been involved in this process. And it's the, it's pretty much the same steps and the same procedures from the corporate meeting space to what I'm doing right now. Um, and so I would like to say that the process gets easier, but it doesn't. Um, 
And it's just one of these necessary evils that that we must go to. I will say that I find um, procurement, whether whatever industry I'm working in, um, has very similar takes on what the process is. So although I'm not reinventing the wheel, each RFP I respond to has nuances uh, and you're just always trying to figure out what that secret sauce is to win that, that job. That word necessary evil, it really irks me the wrong way. To me, that, that's a sign that something is broken along the way, that there's something that doesn't quite work. And we just are working with this process for now because we haven't thought of something better yet. I was curious to know exactly. if you, because I heard they're painful, they're expensive. I mean, I've done them myself, um, low win rates. So we'll get into some of those details, but let's maybe define at a high level before we get to some of those details, define at a high level, what is an RFP and how does it differentiate itself from other types of RF type of things? I've seen RFQs, RFIs, RFTs, RFP, every letter <laughs> basically after the alphabet. So if you can give us maybe just a definition of, of that and a couple of those and or how it distinguishes itself from the other RFs. Sure, absolutely. I think it probably makes sense to start in order how we're receiving documentation when we are being potentially solicited to be a partner to an entity. And typically, at times I'll receive with what we would call an RFI. And a lot of times this is mistaken for an RFQ, but I want to clarify that an RFI or a request for information, it's pretty much the way a service seeker is gathering information. Um, typically, this is the basics of a company, very high level information. What are your Where's your location? What are your services? that you offer. They're just kind of gaining this repository of potential companies that they would reach out to um, when uh, an opportunity surfaces. And then taking that a step further, what I, I know people will respond to the, an RFQ as a request for quotes or quotation. In the world that I live in, an RFQ is a request for qualifications. And that seeks a deeper dive into a potential vendor and really the onus on the vendor is to prove that they have the talent, they have the solutions and the services for future consideration. They're asking for detailed project sheets on like projects to see, you know, what was the scope that you've worked on? What are the services you provided? Tell us what your budgets look like. Give us your client contact information so we can further vet you out. They're really, they're aiming to fully vet potential vendors before an RFP is released, and then they will shortlist vendors based on that information. So that's really what the difference is between an RFI and an RFQ. So an RFQ sometimes will be grouped into an RFP. So the RFP request for proposal. About 50% of the time, it comes in an RFQ as its own documentation. But sometimes a procurement officer will include the RFQ information to be the front end of the RFP. So that and all information will stay the same. And then the back end of that solicits information on how the supplier intends to deliver on the job should they be chosen. This includes providing details on their specific project. So there's a real project at hand. We're not just seeking information about you know, what can you do? We have a project. We are actively seeking partners for that project. And they're asking for information in the RFQ, not just about the details on the project, 
how we intend to execute that, but they want team bios fully flushed. And this could include suppliers that we need to bring into a job. For instance, if we're a fabricator, they want us to own the AV component of it and source vendors for that. An interactive media partner, source vendors for that. So our bio page can sometimes be up to you know, five to 10 pages of partners fully vetted on who's going to be touching this job. They're also asking for a very detailed Gantt chart of the project timeline. We need to show overlap. We need to show handoffs, all of that. It's a very complicated document that we're supplying on that. It's just, I've seen the whole gamut of this. I've worked on RFPs that can be 20 pages up to 100 pages. And the RFP's purpose really is to use multiple criteria that they're using to select the right vendor for the project. And so it, it can get extremely detailed. Now, I know that you mentioned uh, an RFT, which is a request for tender. And at many times, this is confused with an RFP. But an RFT in our world, it's not something we typically touch, but it is basically focuses on pricing and contractual terms. It's pretty much a pricing exercise where it's almost guaranteed that the lower bidder will win without consideration to the other criteria that you see in an RFP. So typically, you could go from RFI to a Q to a P, but you don't have to. But my understanding was if you do go through that process, the vendors that are in the Q will most likely come from the I because there's like a, a funnel process, right? I is the highest level if you choose to use it. Then it goes to a Q if you choose to use it. And then it goes to a P if you choose to use it. You don't have to go to, you could skip straight to the P if you wanted to. But my understanding is, or my impression was that if you do want to do all three of them, that the, the number of vendors at the very top at the I process would trickle down and f- get filtered out along the way down to the P. Is that true? Or you say, or, you, yes. or can vendors come in anytime at any stage? Well, an RFQ is usually, I'll give you an example of when an RFQ is not or an RFI is not issued. In in the world that I work in, most of our work is coming through design firms that are working with the nonprofits. Although our contracts are held with the nonprofits, the cultural institutions, zoos, aquariums, uh, museums, um, the RFQ will be skipped because they already are fully confident in our qualifications, but they're still asking us to lay it out in the RFP at some times. An RFQ is typically used when you are a, a first time in front of the design firm or the cultural institution. So you're not always getting it in that order. Sometimes it's just going straight to the RFP because they know who you are. Does that answer the question? It does, it in terms of the the um, whether you would do one or not, but I was curious to know. The second part of my question was, if you do want, if you do do all three as a as an organization, a nonprofit, you want to do first the I, then the Q, then the P. Would you typically see, let's say, twenty uh, vendors? Let's say I'm coming up with a number. Twenty vendors apply for the I. Of those, you know, a certain number pass that. When they do the when the organization does the the Q, they'll start with the results of the vendors from the I, or do you, yes. or are there new vendors in, introduced at that stage, typically? Typically, they're pulling from the pool of the I's. So okay. they're, they're just getting the, the high-level information. And in that information, for instance, for a fabrication studio, they'll say, okay, how many square feet do they have in there? Can they handle this job? 
um, do they have the ability to execute at all? And the RFQ, it, so they'll pare it down from that. And then from the RFQ, they're going to get a little bit more specific. How many jobs are they running in their shop or their business at that time? And they're going to pay attention to those things because they're going to want to know, do they have the capacity? Do they have the teamwork? So Q will get flushed out even more. And you might see if you're saying 20 get the RFI, you may see 10 get the RFQ. And then from that, maybe eight to five will get the RFP based on the information they received from the two previous steps. Okay, that makes sense to me then. I get you right. There's definitely a final process if you choose so choose to use each of those uh, processes. So then, why why are these things so popular anyway? Like, why is it, let's focus now on the RFP from this point more or less forward. <laughs> so why why are RFPs so so popular? I, I know you know quite a few. Uh, I was introduced to quite a few people actually through the means of doing an RFP. Um, you know, it's a long, laborious process. You said, you know, 20 pages to 100 pages. This is not something you can do in a day. So obviously there's some kind of, there's a desire to do it on the vendor side, but there's obviously a, a greater desire. There's a, a need or a problem that the nonprofit is trying to solve that they feel at this moment, the best way to solve it is through an RFP. Why is that? So if you look at it this way, an RFP is essentially an audit, right, of, of potential vendors. Their funding is coming in from nonprofits through capital campaigns and endowments. So they're basically spending others' money, and their onus is to prove that they're spending it wisely. Um, and although, you know, to me, partnerships are more than just the dollar sign. Um, and unfortunately, they're not looking at it that way on the onset. They're looking at, okay, what is the best value for the services that we're asking? And the RFP allows them to make these comparisons side by side of potential vendors and, you know, use this weighted scale. I'm pretty sure every procurement department has a weighted scale of where they place value the most. And, and, and it's unfortunate that it comes down to price versus over experience, over you know, synergy between the, you know, the people working, the stakeholders from both sides. So I, I look at an RFP from a nonprofit for my work as more of an auditing process than anything else, if that makes sense. It does. And I've seen the same thing, you know, weighted scales. Um, and I've heard typically that most of the time, unless there's some very strong indicators of value other than the price that organizations typically choose the second lowest price. And then they kind of ignore every other consideration, which is unfortunately really, really sad. Yes, I a hundred percent agree. We've, we've been down, I've been down the road where, you know, we've walked away thinking, Oh, we just nailed it in the RFP we did a really good job of showing who we are as a team. We thought our prices were good, not the highest, not the lowest, but we really made connections and asked very smart questions to show them the way we think. And, you know, I always ask for a feedback form uh, when we do not win. I think understanding why you don't win is as important as why you won. So, you know, next time you go into that process with a similar project, you, you're just armed with more knowledge um, and you might look at things a little bit differently. Actually, that's a, I, I see it the opposite. 
I think it's more common, at least from my perspective, it's more common to ask why you failed. It's less common to ask why you succeeded. Why were you chosen? I love that question instead. I love that question too, but you know, I've experienced it more than not for the attitude to be, well, it's their loss that they didn't choose us. They're going to be sorry they didn't choose us when you know, you you have to do the efforts to find out, you know, all the reasons in a debrief, why the decision was made, whether you won or not, all of that information is important. Right. So let's start then as a vendor. If you want to respond to an RFP, you know, you, you've you've seen it, you're, you're interested in applying for it, it fits the criteria that you're in your capabilities. What would be some high-level tips that you can give to vendors to say, okay, make sure you include you know, these headlines or these titles in your RFP, regardless of, what, of whether the RFP asks for it or not. And I'll clarify that what I mean by that. I've seen a few times where it, the RFP will say, we only want one option, for example, only give us one option, one price point. And yet I've seen certain vendors give more than one, and then the the nonprofit or the organization actually likes that. They actually like having that choice. So even though they asked for something different, or maybe they didn't ask for something, there was something in that response that made that particular vendor stand out. So is there anything that you can offer as advice, high-level tips to how to stand out to be more noticeable among your peers of other people responding to that RFP? Yeah, I do. But I think before that, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of go through the process when you get an RFP in the door to mm, make sure. sure that are hitting everything because there are some tips to stand out, but I think it's important to instill a process that is repeatable um, when RFPs walk in the door to make sure you're not missing anything. And um, if, if you're okay with that, we'll go down that path first. Love it. Uh, yeah, I actually kind of skipped over that. And, and I think you're, thank you for keeping me honest and bringing us back you're, to that you're point. Welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. So in, in my role um, in business development, um, typically I'm the first person that's receiving something if it's not coming over an email um, and because I'm actively pursuing these opportunities. Um, I always like to assign a leader, which is going to be typically myself or another team member that understands the type of work that's coming in to own this process. They, You need a first person, first line of defense. And this person needs to be the liaison between all of the departments that will contribute to the final response. Now, you've got, when we talk about different departments, you know, you've got marketing, you've got design, you've got technical leads, you've got build leads. Any Anyone that's responsible that will be in this proposal you have to have a leader that is making this communication between all the departments and also identifying a proposal coordinator for gathering all the information needed because that proposal coordinator is going to be working hand in hand with the design and marketing teams to create the final product and make sure it's a well-structured presentation. And then initiating this first internal meeting once all the stakeholders have been identified and they have a chance to review the RFP, you need to get that first meeting on the calendar and pretty quickly. I like to try to get it on within, I don't know, three to four days after we receive the RFP in our in our hands. Um, and I want contribution from everybody to get their list of questions together. Now, this is interesting. Um, procurement has gone to this model of taking all vendor questions 
and creating a list. And I do appreciate this to submit out to all responders. So everyone is starting from an equal playing field. Um, and there's some downsides to it too, because you're asking really smart questions and you're also giving other vendors who didn't necessarily think of those questions, they're getting the same questions. But what it does show is transparency with having equal footing on it. So I want everybody to get together from our team and I want a very thorough, comprehensive list of questions that we can submit that can help us um, in developing our answers and our process and our solutions. And um, then also asking questions that maybe not be so tactical. Let's, let's find out what is their objectives of this project? Who is their audience? In my case, many times working with the cultural institutions that I do, what are their desired outcomes? Ask things like that that show them that your solutions aren't just off the shelf, that you're really trying to think about what their project means um, and what is the best possible outcome for them. I'd like to create a, a schedule on milestones for the RFP process. Sometimes these RFPs that are coming in the door are so complicated. And, you know, creating a schedule with milestones so we stay on task is great. And then finally, I tell my teams, we're going to submit early. We're not going to bring it down, you know, five o'clock end of day on, you know, January 5th. No, we're going to submit it on January 3rd, mid-afternoon. And I also always ask whoever is receiving our response. I, I want confirmation that they received it. I've actually sent out an RFP recently where my email was blocked from their inbox and I got an email two days after the RFP was due asking if we decided not to respond. So um, whatever you need to get that response that it was received. So before we get in that, that those things are really important before you can get into the, the, the treatment of the RFP and how to stand out from the others. Just before we move on to that, I wanted to see if you had any questions. I, I love the objectives and the outcomes. To me, that's really the key, for me at least, because I, I focus a lot on that when doing my work, is you know, what, are, what are we trying to achieve to make sure that, you, like you said, the whole RFP response is catered toward that. If they want X, then you make sure you build toward X and not toward Y, for example. And that's, a, I think, a, an important um, compass stone. And I like the idea, too, of the multiple people, getting people aligned, getting people involved. Uh, so, yeah, very... Um, very strict and very well thought out process. Yeah. And when you're building your presentation, so you start with a shell. In, in our case, our presentations get, you know, very creative. We're showing off our work that we've done. I do regular cadence calls and is built into this milestone, the schedule milestones where, okay, we've, we've touched this proposal, our, our design, our marketing. I, I don't care if we've only made five changes um, it helps everybody see the shell of the proposal and what's missing. So they're able to react a little bit quicker. So, it, it, you know, it could be a 30-minute check-in, you know, every couple of days, but let's just make sure everybody's aligned and they know what they need to do. Awesome. Do you want to jump next to the uh, high-level tips when responding? Sure, sure. So there is a challenge to solicit information from procurement or whoever's submitting the RFP, it, it's challenging to fully understand what they are looking for. They say they're looking for one thing, but 
you know, you have to take it at face value. It, they say, I've heard, oh, it's a combination of factors. We're looking for like creativity, what your team experience is, uh, what's your overall value? Oh, and yeah, price is a consideration, but it's not the only consideration. And we're always asking what we think are the right questions to set our company apart from the competition. And, you know, again, I said to you, I thought that at times our values, our creative thought process, our team members, we're a hundred percent aligned, but we lose the job. Um, and we've created this, you know, amazing relationship with the conversations, but, and we lose. So I've come to the conclusion that price is pretty much the most important factor uh, in most of the RFPs that I respond to. And I don't have a solution to how to really get that truth out. So we still put our best foot forward. I have been successful when we take that time to really make our response unique in the presentation design um, and communicate the benefits of working with our company. There's narratives that you really need to think about um, when you're communicating because it doesn't matter. I, I worked for a fabrication studio. If I read through everybody's material, we all sound like we're the same company. Uh, and so how do you really focus on setting yourself apart from the, your competition? And, you know, that's your job of your marketing team, but it's also the job of the business development person to catch nuances and conversations with the, the issuer. And, and try to capture those nuances in your narrative in the RFP. I think that creating or, you know, including a very thoughtful executive or cover letter to lead off your response is very important. I always find that when I take the approach that, oh, we heard you and we put their words back to them, they have a confidence that, yes, we are listening to them. Um, I like to include, and I encourage everybody, especially in very long RFPs, include a table of contents in, in it because it, section breaks and headers are great, but oftentimes these long RFPs, they're going to need to go back and refer to them and including a table of contents helps them do that quickly. And you mentioned something earlier about like offering a different price schedule or a different process for their project. I think it's really good to share additional information in an RFP, but in my experience, you need to do that in an appendix versus trying to insert it into what is already considered a structured RFP. Um, procurement desires to take this information from multiple responses and compare it, right? So they're creating their own charts to compare information. If you go off off the road on this, if you, you know, cross the lines, you're making their job a little bit more difficult. And I, I can guarantee you, you're going to lose points for that. So if you do want to include additional information, always include it in appendix and don't, you know, kind of commingle it with the structure that they set up for you. So, you know, those are some tips I like to use. I just, I think, you know, getting a strong writer is super important. And, and somebody who can tell stories very well. And it doesn't matter if you're selling a widget or if you're selling, you know, creative services. Approach it the same way. I've seen a very successful uh, response include a video, a very personalized video. And I was actually really impressed by how quickly they were able to put together this video. I'm sure there was some AI in there somewhere. But it was 
contextual, relevant, inspiring, had some great music. And nonprofit who received it was really blown away by the effort and the touch, the emotions and the, and the, and the, the touch aspect that it had, the stickiness and the, and the, all of those things were just really powerful emotionally. What is your thoughts about video or other kinds of things that are not necessarily evident by responding, you know, just with words? I think it's amazing. And to be honest, in the role that I have right now with the interactive media company, our work is very visual. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to show a relationship between a visitor or a user and technology, which would be a screen or a touch table. And so we have the ability and we do, we insert links into our projects rather than showing them project sheets um, we'll give them like the high level data on it, but we show how our installations and museums and themed entertainment and visitor centers, how the um, visitor is interacting with the machine through video. And we use very powerful music with it. And it's something that I'm thrilled that I get to do in this role. It's not always relevant. It could be, but this is something that is so intuitive to what I'm doing right now that I'm excited that this is a process that we're using in every RFP that we send out. And then let's talk about transparency. And, and transparency, of course, goes both ways. The nonprofit or the organization needs to be transparent with the vendors and the vendors need to be, or I believe they should be <laughs> transparent with the, you know, th- transparent meaning things that you want, things that you don't want, things you're capable of doing things that think you're you're less capable of doing like where would your gauge of transparency be is it like full transparency be brutally honest or have mostly transparent conversations or just you know try to win under all costs would be i guess the other extreme from that gauge yeah it's interesting because when i started out when when my career started with the corporate meetings. I found that the two agencies that I worked for were very reluctant to share the fact that maybe 50% of the work was being farmed out. And um, I, I always struggled to understand why that wasn't revealed in, in, mm. in our response. Because I feel like you can't be everything to everybody. And if we try to, if we went in with the guys that, oh yeah, we do like absolutely everything in house. If I were the issuer of the RFP, I would be skeptical because it's just not possible. I think it's important to show, you know what, we don't do everything, but we have built a strong team of partners that we trust. Here's our history with them. And you should be, you know, confident that we have this team as a whole and that we, we do have the ability to reach outside of our home and, and, you know, work with people that are really the experts in this. So now in the last, the role I had before the one I'm in now and my current role, for example, I'm being asked to source AV as part of our scope. Well, of course we don't have, you know, AV hardware sitting in our shop. We are designers and implementers and producers. So it's very transparent in this world that we bring in partners. So I think the transparency and who's touching your job should always be out in the open. I don't think it's a criteria that companies are looking for a, you know, one stop shop for everything. I don't think that's a talking point anymore. Um, I want to talk about transparency with the nonprofits. I don't understand why budgets are not shared. Um, I think if budgets were shared, 
you you have the ability then to take that request for qualification step um, a little deeper and you can immediately eliminate you know, you're you're asking somebody to spend their own time, a company to spend, you know, resources, money. Let's let's look at the cost of an RFP. In in my situation, I worked on RFPs that have personally cost the company over thirty five thousand dollars, and and sometimes more than that. Wow. And and we don't recoup that, so that's a loss. And so, to me, the issuers of these RFPs, they should have some consideration for the expense and the time and the resources that we put in to being fully committed to this process and wanting to win the job. Now, if our budget comes in, you know, I think number one, the issuer should be asking for best and final prices on the onset. I can't tell you how many times now I see round two come in. Now we want your best and final. Why isn't it best and final in the onset? And why are you not sharing budgets? Because it, we may take a look at a budget and say, oh, this isn't a fit for us. Give us that opportunity to say no before we put in that much time and resources into a project. And be honest about how many bidders you've invited to the table. I typically don't want to take an RFP on if I know there's more than four bidders because I, re- I know what that percentage is of us winning. So it does yeah. go both ways. Budget and bidders, I totally agree. Uh, just based on my own experience of the few <laughs> pre processes that I responded to, had I known those two things, it would have been an entirely different game for me because you can, to your point, you can decide whether it's worth it and you can make decisions on, well, we can give you the, I always call it the Cadillac version, or we can give you the, uh, the, the scooter version. But the idea is, you know, knowing where their budget is will allow you to figure out the best solution for their budget, not overshoot by too much. Right. And so we have to then, you know, somehow figure out how to talk about value engineering a project then when, you know, we're, we're coming from a place of no knowledge, what the budget is. Um, based on experience, we can pretty much gauge, you know, with similar jobs, what, what their budget is, but we just don't know. So we have to, you know, automatically put it out there, but, but we're willing to value engineer this with you. You know, and so then you have you're at risk and, and people don't think about this, but you're at risk of telling them that they didn't think this through well enough. So you don't want to, you know, insult anybody at the same time. So I think I, I hope and I've been hoping this ever since I've been involved in, in an RFP process that we get to a place where, you know, I still don't understand why, why budgets are not shared, because you want to work with a company that will take a look at the budget and either say, no, we can't do it for this, or you know what? We could do it for less. You know, people, if, if you have the budget, I think they're afraid that you're going to say, oh, even though this job's going to cost you 20% less, you know their budget. So you're going to go in at the full budget. I think that there needs to be a little bit more faith that people are going to be honest through this process. If you don't start from that, then the, where do you go? Yeah, totally agree. We've we've already established that, especially when there's a high number of bidders, the chances of winning are low. The amount of time it takes, I mean, 20 to 100 pages, $35,000 and up sometimes. Like, how much time? And, and then we also talked about um, customizing the response so it's not just off-the-shelf copy-paste from other libraries. So is there any kind of metric or indication of how much time a vendor should spend responding to an RFP? 
like I imagine it's you know the bigger the budget, the more you should spend on it. But is there anything other other considerations besides that factor in in determining how long you should spend and how much time and effort and money you should spend building your response? You know, for me, Alex, I I feel like there is no rule to that. I think it just boils down to how much do you want the work, um, and is this investment, if you win, worth the time and effort? for a financial windfall and also to chase similar work where you may have not had that work before and you want it in your portfolio. Um, you know, if you believe you have a high chance of winning, you, you know, you give it your all and, and you, you don't hold back with resources and, you know, time. And also what does this mean in our industry? So if, if I'm chasing a job that we haven't been considered for before and we win it, it's a game changer. For us, so those those things are really considered. I've instilled a process in my new role where I I have a go no go process. It's there. It's been done before. There's forms. I think it's called the Marin form. It, it can be tweaked for any industry that you work in, but you know I set criteria in the form, and sometimes it needs to be a little bit more customized. But you know we we talk about everything involved in it. Like, do we know the budget? How many responders are there? You know, what is the time commitment? What's the option for residual work from it? All of these things need to be looked at before you even decide. You have to go through this process before you decide to to move forward with it or to politely decline, you know, to, to respond to it. I also have a criteria in my go-no-go. No go. I, I call it a PIA client, which I won't say on on this podcast, but you know how difficult is that client going to be to work with? What has our experience been just from the onset? Um, and if we're willing to do it, are we going to go forward and put a premium on it with the additional cost to our proposal because we understand how much handholding will be done? So I don't know. I don't have a, a set answer for you about how much time you should spend on it. I, I think obviously the ones that you've already done this type of work and you can use a lot of boilerplate information, it, it's not going to take that much effort besides building your budget. And you've got a set list of work to show that aligns with it. But for work that you haven't done before, you really have to just decide how important is it for you to get this work in the door. And it's the answer is different for everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. If this is going to make your your company, then it's <laughs> shoot for the stars because it could completely change your organization for the better. So it is worth exactly. it, even though the budget might not be as, as yeah, it's independent of the budget, basically. And then when you submit the response, I love the fact that you ask for confirmation that they received it. What is your opinion about presenting the response in the sense of having the vendor have a few or maybe everyone or depending on how many people need to be involved actually do a presentation, virtual or in-person, uh, where they present the proposal to the vendor? Is that usually something that happens or it happens only once in a while? Like, like, and you know, what are your thoughts around that? That's interesting. So um, I've seen within the, the uh, corporate event industry, it was almost always a given that we were going to be able to present our um, RFP, our response live. Last couple of years, not so much. And COVID may have something to do with that. The trend that I'm seeing with that is they ask all responders to send in their proposals and they will select from there who comes in to present live. So I would say 
it's probably 50% if I had to guess where we're actually, you know, going in and we have the opportunity either through a virtual meeting or a live meeting to sit down with their stakeholders. I think it's really smart for the issuer to do that. You get to see the team in person, how they interact, personalities, um, how are they under pressure, uh, throw some questions at them that were not in the RFP, how are they responding to it? So I would say about 50%, but it seems, you know, during COVID, it's been more of a virtual meeting. Plus also, you know, because of the industries that I work in, we're not always in the same city. So it's a financial commitment too for our team to get on a plane and, and go travel. And you want representation from the entire team there that's going to be working on the job so they can they can see how everybody works together. Yeah, I totally agree, especially in my industry where it's a lot of service-based stuff because you were going to be working with these individuals for a long period of time, months, maybe years. You want to see them present. You want to see how they interact, how they negotiate, how they communicate, their body language. So even if you can't do it live, doing it virtually, I think is a great idea. And I also recommend it too. Yes. And if you're going to go in live, I have to tell you an anecdote about a recent experience I had. We brought in a new partner that we had never worked with before that was going to be leading the front end of the design on a project. And we've met, they did a tour of our studio, but when we got in the room, we were thrown a question about our work together and our process. And we weren't prepared for that question. And um, we did not win that job. And we stammered on it. So if you are going to go in for a live presentation, virtual or in person, it's you need to start creating scenarios and anticipate questions that will be thrown at you. That reminds me of a joke actually where these two students are they go on a, they go to a weekend party, a binder, they get smashed, drunk, and then they miss <laughs> their exam in the morning on Monday. And when they tell the professor that their car broke down and the wheel, specifically their wheel had a flat and um, they didn't have a spare tire. And so they didn't get back uh, on site for the exam Monday morning in time. So what the professor did is he separated the two students and asked them one question only. He asked, which tire was it? (laughs) 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 Which I think goes to your point of saying, oh yeah, exactly. The idea is making sure you guys get aligned (laughs) and try to um, anticipate as many questions as possible and align on those answers so that you do have a cohesion, (laughs) cohesive voice going in, one voice, regardless if you are actually one team or multiple teams. Exactly. Yes. You need to get your story straight. And then a lot of effort, a lot of time. I imagine the expectations of 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 a vendor has to be low. Like, you know, despite the amount of effort, the, the connection, like you said in your example, that you had that you thought you nailed it and you and you didn't get it. Like, how is there anything you can do to set up your expectations to say, look, despite all the best effort that we can possibly make, despite having the best possible price that we can come up with, we're probably not going to win it. Is there any kind of should that be a factor in your thoughts, or is it do you know just go all in, hope for the best, and try to see the silver lining every single time? Or there should be some kind of should you hedge your bets along the way to say maybe we should not throw in everything because it would cost too much or take too long to to to, um, to go for it? Yeah, so I'm going to kind of answer this in a different way because somebody just shared this with me recently when I started my new role. 
because a, a lot of the work that I'm going to be doing is going to be coming from partners where we're not actually client facing until we're they are selected as the partner. So um, I'll put it to you this way. This very wise man told me, he said, avoid pursuing projects if the likelihood of winning is below 80%. Now, I know that seems ridiculous considering the win rate is about 10 to 15%, but 80% of the requests for proposals that walk in the door, we're not going to win them and sometimes higher. So I'm trying to figure out this approach of only responding to about 20% of the RFPs that come in my door where we have a 80% chance of winning. Does that make sense? I mean, I want to focus on opportunities with a high probability of success and prioritize the quality over the quantity so we can use our resources more efficiently and be very selective of what we're pursuing. It is something that's not practiced. I mean, I can tell you every company I have been with feels that, you know, fear of missing out, FOMO. So let's, let's go after everything. And sometimes we're only putting in half-hearted efforts to win it, right? And sometimes we win with those half-hearted efforts because our price was the best. But if you're good at your job and in, in, in a business development role, and that's, the, you know, I get RFPs because of my efforts with business development, I have got to be smarter about the questions to get to the criteria that is going to determine whether we win this job or not. So if I focus 80% of my attention on 20% of the work, I'm going to come out, uh, you know, smelling like roses versus what, what is typically what we do. Does that, mm. does that make sense? That makes total sense. Okay. So then looking forward, looking toward the future, any trends that you see happening either now in the near future or in the in the longer term future, I don't know if you want to weave in if there's any implications about AI or any kind of just general trends that you see regarding this entire process on either side of the spectrum for RFPs. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned AI. I mean, I'll, I'll kick that question off that, you know, for the past 10 years that I've been responding to RFPs, I've had the same experience. I read all the blogs. I look for, oh, new trends with RFPs. It's something that I pay attention to. And I hear a lot of ideas and, you know, assuredness that this is what's going to be happening. And I'm hoping to see breakthrough trends that will make this process less about what I would call like a recipe for an unhealthy one-sided relationship that we experience in this process and make it more about collaboration and transparency. But this has not happened. I have not seen anything that was like, you know, revolutionary in this process. The only thing I have seen, and I would say probably since 2022 is when I really, it's made a difference, is AI. AI supported content. Um, it's omnipresent and it's only going to get more practiced in responding to these RFPs. We, we actually did an exercise where we put an entire RFP through an AI program to spit out our answer. I mean, it's, it's, it needed a lot of tweaking, but it was, it was something we just wanted to do to see how that response differed from the response that we gave that was organic. But, and also I heard through a colleague that um, procurement is onto this. They're wise to this practice and uh, they received an RP that one of the terms was they're providing guarantees and assurances that the responders will not use an AI, AI tool to frame the responses but that's a little bit funny now because there's AI tools to check AI tools now. 
You know, I, an AI tool is used now to paraphrase an AI generated content. So I don't know how we're going to get away from it or what the next AI trend will be. But to me, that seems to be the only thing I can predict. I, I can't see things changing unless responders are flat out just saying, no, we're, we're not going to go through this expense. We're not going to go through the time. You know what? We'll collaborate with you. We understand that you need to select vendors, but what else can we do besides this document to become a trusted partner? And, and I don't know what that is. I've, I've been looking for it for 10 years. Mm. Well, the search has to continue, I guess. But um, for now, uh, Renee, I want to thank you so much for your time. And I wanted to know um, if you could share how, if uh, there are people listening who have some follow-up questions, if there's ways that they can get in touch with you uh, to do that. Sure, absolutely. Um, so you can send me an email um, at Ren, R-E-N, Mancino, M-A-N-C-I-N-O. I say Mancino versus Mancino for <laughs> those who aren't familiar with the Italian pronunciation. So it's RenMancino at gmail.com. Awesome. Ren, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.